0: Good morning, it's Thursday, September the 22nd, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Ah, your friend Dave Brown drank some espresso this morning. Regular coffee just wouldn't do. Coming up on the show today... Professor Marta Dychuk from Western University will comment on the developments of the Russia-Ukraine war. Don Dickinson will be here to preview this week's McLean's Magazine with an article about the rise in rental prices. And Aaron Broverman will offer up his perspective on the mishandling and damage to mobility devices caused by airlines. Of course, the major news story on that one is the founder of Access Now, Mayan Ziv, having her wheelchair significantly damaged on a flight to Israel. But let's begin the show with our top story of the day, and it's coming from the climate file. Hurricane Fiona is heading towards Bermuda after causing significant damage in Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, and Turks and Caicos. Philip Pappin is tracking the storm's movements from the National Hurricane Center in Miami.
1: It's located... uh a few hundred miles to the southwest of Bermuda and it is now moving towards the uh, north at 10 miles an hour although we're expecting it to turn to the north northeast and northeast over the next uh, day or so.
0: ABC News senior meteorologist Rob Marciano says Fiona is gaining strength now over the open waters of the Atlantic and nothing but warm water and moist air ahead of it. So it will stay a Category 4, potentially getting stronger as it passes just to the west of Bermuda and then as a strong damaging storm into Atlantic Canada and, yeah, high surf, big waves and rip currents for the east coast. Environment Canada is warning of severe wind gusts, coastal so- storm surges and pounding rain when Fiona heads to Nova Scotia, PEI, eastern New Brunswick and eastern Quebec later tomorrow night and on Saturday. Let's move internationally with the climate story. Floods in Pakistan's worst-hit province have killed 10 people in the past few days, including four children. Scott Willerly, head of the UNICEF Pakistan, says the unprecedented unprecedented monsoon rains and flooding have left people homeless and ill.
2: So there's about 13 million, which we estimate as as affected. Um, Immediately in need is probably close to 7 to 8 million But the biggest issues which we see right now, which are life-threatening, are malaria, diarrhea, um, dysentery, cholera. These are our big concerns.
0: Woolery discussed the people who may be most at risk.
2: The impact is is huge. Uh, It's covered four provinces. This is one of the biggest disasters Pakistan has ever seen, And, and children and women are always most heavily affected.
0: The U.N. Children's Agency renewed its appeal for $39 million to help the most vulnerable flood victims. Let's turn to the economy. A couple of international stories to share with you in regards to interest rates. The U.S. Federal Reserve has raised its key interest rate by three-quarters of a percentage point. For a third straight time, Chair Jerome Powell says the Fed continues moving forcefully in a bid to lower inflation.
3: The FOMC raised its policy interest rate by three-quarters of a percentage point. And we anticipate that ongoing increases will be appropriate. We are moving our policy stance purposefully to a level that will be sufficiently restrictive to return inflation to 2%.
0: The hike boosted the U.S. rate to its highest level since early 2008. Switzerland's central bank has also hiked its interest rates. Karen Chamis has those numbers.
4: The Swiss National Bank has said that there may be further increases in the future. It says future hikes could be made to ensure price stability over the medium term. The rate was raised by three quarters of a percentage point. Switzerland's interest rate was originally minus 0.25% and has been moved to 0.5%. I'm Karen Chamas. Uh,
0: When the Swiss banks move, we all pay attention. We also had the Bank of England this morning raising their rates by half a percentage point. Let's bring the story back to Canada, where Statistics Canada says the national homeownership rate is on the decline. The national rate fell from 69% in 2011 to 66.5% in 2021. Eric Olson, an assistant director at Stats Canada's Centre for Income and Socioeconomic Wellbeing Statistics, says homeownership rates fell across the vast majority of the country.
3: Regionally, the home ownership rate dropped in 12 of the 13 provinces and territories. The exception was the Northwest Territories. The largest declines occurred in Prince Edward Island, Nova Scotia, with the declines of 4.6 and 4 percentage points, respectively. While British Columbia and Ontario recorded the next largest declines, just over 3 percentage points each.
0: Now, there was one more element to these stats that I wanted to share with you that maybe almost runs counterintuitive to the mainstream conversation we have about affordability. Olson says despite ownership rates decreasing, affordability actually improved in the last five years.
3: And thus, when household incomes grow faster than shelter costs, as they did up to the 2021 census, this creates conditions for improved housing affordability. So the rate of unaffordable housing or the proportion of households that spent more than 30% of their income on shelter costs fell from 24.1% in 2016 to 20.9% in 2021.
0: Now, those numbers just emerged during the day yesterday. I'd love to get a little more analysis on what that actually means from an expertise point of view, because that runs so counterintuitive to the rise in cost of ownership and the rise in cost in renting. In fact, we'll talk to Dawn Dickinson about that in her preview of McLean's magazine in just a couple of minutes. I want to share you one more story from the world of nature. We did natural disasters off the top of the show, but there's a weird one emerging in the South Pacific. Wildlife experts rescued dozens of whales a day after hundreds of mammals were found stranded on a remote Australian island. Karen Chamis explains the strange story.
4: When first found, half of the 230 whales beached on shore were believed to be alive. By the next morning, less than three dozen managed to survive the pounding surf overnight. Wildlife manager for the area, Brendan Clark, said the rescue operation for the remaining 35 was a success. It's worked very effectively, our operations today. At least 32 of the 35 animals that are still alive have been refloated, rescued and released. Marine scientist Vanessa Pirota says although there are many theories, the reason behind the strandings are still a mystery.
0: This is actually the second stranding in Tasmania this week. Earlier, there was 14 sperm whales, which is a different species of, of whale. And um, unfortunately, they've stranded as well. But yet, what, what is going on? We
4: don't actually know. I'm Karen Chamas.
0: Let's get to our daily polls. At Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. is where you can find us on Facebook. Yesterday, we asked you what is the best part of fall. 36% of you said the weather, 29% of you said the leaves, 21% of you said fall produce, and 14% of you love yourself some football. Are you ready for some football? Two good games tonight, one in the pros and one in college, but we'll talk about that with Brock a little bit later in the show. Let's get to today's daily poll. Have you tried a trending challenge on social media? Yes or no? One of the trends on social today continues to be NyQuil. As uh, people have decided to try eating chicken that they cook in NyQuil, we would absolutely never condone that kind of activity, just like we would never condone trying to eat Tide Pods. Seems like a poor idea. That said... Every now and then something pops up on social media that's a good thing. For example, the amount of money that was raised for ALS research with the Ice Bucket Challenge. I definitely dumped a bucket of ice on myself to raise a few dollars. So sometimes some positivity can happen. There can be positive trends and challenges on social media that go well beyond poisoning yourself. So let's first go to Alexander Smythe. Alex Smythe, tell me, sir, have you ever tried a social media challenge?
3: You know, for, I, when I first saw this uh, question being posted, I, I was trying to think, it's like, are there any positive social media challenges? All the ones I would think of would be like, oh, it's the Tide Pods. Oh, it's this NyQuil with chicken, which you are getting the worst of both worlds. Uh, you know, it was the things <laughs> like the cinnamon challenge and like the cracker challenges, which are like, no, these are things that are very bad for you and your body and you should not do them at all.
0: Like the milk challenge, trying to drink a gallon of milk. Yeah.
3: Yeah, which, like, you know, all scientists and anyone who, who knows anything about uh, uh, milk is like, don't do it, you physically can't do it. You I, will still, it I
0: still think I could, but that's neither here nor there,
3: yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but that said, I, I, I mean, we talked about it a couple uh, weeks ago. Is I, I did recently kind of partake in the the paki challenge, the one chip challenge, which. I guess you can almost say it's a viral social oh, yeah. media trend. Oh yeah. So I I, I guess that one uh, ticks a box. And then when you mentioned obviously the the ice bucket challenge, I remember being um, working with the uh, ET Canada right when that was blowing up, and uh, we had our our whole team. We were out and involved in that. So uh, so I, I I've been involved in a few, but most time I look at them and just like, why would anyone do this to themselves? <laughs> like you're go- only gonna hurt yourself. For likes or shares or whatever, it's, eh, it's not worth it.
0: Eliza Rocco, what about you? You ever done a TikTok dance or an ice bucket challenge or, God forbid, a NyQuil chicken challenge?
5: <laughs> uh, no TikTok dances from me, unfortunately. But when these challenges first started arising, I think it was in the early 2010s. I was a teenager then, and uh, I was very into all of these kind of challenges. <laughs> now Nowadays, I find that these challenges are just... Either painful or not fun or not enjoyable, so I don't do any of them anymore. Back in the day, I have done the ice bucket challenge, of course. Um, I don't know if you remember the Kylie Jenner lip challenge.
0: I do not. It's,
5: I won't go too deep into explaining it, but it was also a painful one. It was, it was not fun. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. All right. Um, the cinnamon challenge, and then you have like the dance challenges, like the Harlem Shake. I partook in that one. Yeah, yeah. The mannequin challenge. I don't know if you know that one where you stand still. No. Song plays.
0: I remember the planking challenge.
5: Yes, that was a big one for me. That was my biggest one. There are Facebook photos everywhere, like hundreds of Facebook photos of me planking.
0: (laughs) Wow, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What was, what was the, wasn't there the one about like the lip syncing as well, where you would try and get a bunch of people to do a large lip sync together, like choreographed lip syncing?
5: Yep. Yep. That was uh, up my alley as well. I did that one too. I did uh, almost every one in between 2010, 2015. All nice. of them were done
0: by me. <laughs> and listen again, some of those are just fun and right? positive and yeah. like bring a lot of energy to it. So so sometimes we dwell upon the Tide Pods or the NyQuil, but every now and then, you know, there's something yeah. that's fun, that's something fun that pops along. But I do tend to agree with your overall thesis that maybe they've become a little bit um, shall we call them manufactured now? Yeah. A little bit forced, a little, a little <laughs> less, a Dangerous, little less earnest little and authentic. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Fair enough. Eliza, thank you for this. Thank you. At accessible media is where you find us on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. That's where you can vote on the polls. While you're doing that voting, you can also listen to Alex Smythe, who's going to tell you what's happening in the world of weather.
3: Here's our AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting in St. John's, Newfoundland, it's cloudy and showers starting this morning with up to 4 millimeters expected and wind gusts up to 60 kilometers an hour. The tropical cyclone statement is in effect due to Hurricane Hurricane Fiona, and there is a high of 16. On to Halifax, Nova Scotia. It's a mix of sun and clouds, turning cloudy this afternoon, and a high of 19. There is also the special weather statement in effect due to Hurricane Fiona as well. In Montreal, Quebec, it's possible showers off and on today, and 17 is the high. In Ottawa, Ontario, it's cloudy with a chance of rain today, and wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour, and the highest 15. In Toronto, Ontario, it's cloudy with a chance of showers later this morning and into the afternoon. Wind gusts as well, up to 50 kilometers per hour, and the high is 16. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's cloudy with a chance of rain today as well, and 15 is also the high. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, man, it's mainly sunny and 15 is the high there. Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, sunny as well, and a high of 20. In Calgary, Alberta, it's a mix of sun and clouds, and 14 is the high. In Edmonton, Alberta, sunshine, and a high of 23. It's an absolutely beautiful day in my old stomping grounds. In Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, sunny, and 16 is the high. In Vancouver, BC, it's sunny as well, and the high is 19. And finally, in Victoria, B.C., sunshine as well, and the high is 22. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Uh,
0: Some beautiful weather for the Senior Triples National Lawn Bowling Championship going on in Victoria, B.C., and I'll say it again. Good luck, Mom. Coming up next, we'll talk about the developments in the Russia-Ukraine war with perspective from Professor Marta Dychuk from Western University. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. (music) We'll <music> welcome back it's now with Dave Brown on AMI the conflict in Ukraine continues Ukrainian forces have taken back territory in a counter-offensive over the last few weeks however Russian President Vladimir Putin has partially mobilized 300,000 reservists to join the war effort Putin has once again made mention of the use of nuclear weapons. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky says Russia's decision to mobilize reservists shows Moscow is not serious about negotiating an end to the war. Zelensky says Russia must be sanctioned for its invasion of Ukraine.
6: A crime has been committed against Ukraine, and we demand just punishment. The crime was committed against our state borders. The crime was committed against the lives of our people. The crime was committed against the dignity of our women and men.
0: European Union Foreign Policy Chief Joseph Burl is promising new sanctions against Russia after the escalation.
1: It's located uh, a few
3: hundred oh, miles oh, to the southwest.
0: I, I, posted, of I posted the wrong clip there. I'm sorry, that was about the national hurricane. I do have another clip here, and hopefully I posted this one correctly, of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau condemning Russia's escalation of the war. His partial military mobilization, his nuclear threats, as well as Russia's rushed referendums to try to annex parts of Ukraine are unacceptable. Putin's behavior only goes to show that his invasion is failing. For perspective on this developing story, let's hear from Marta Dijek, professor of history and political science at Western University in London. Professor Dijek, thank you so much for making time to be with us today. We're grateful. Thanks for having me. I wonder if we can start with the counteroffensive that we've seen in the last couple of weeks. Can you describe the scale and significance of Ukrainian forces retaking territory?
2: Absolutely. This is the second time Ukraine has pushed Russia back. The first time was back in uh, in the spring when they pushed Russian forces back from the cave area, and in late summer. September, they pushed them back from the Kharkiv area, which had been occupied by Russia since the beginning of the war. This was a massive victory for Ukraine, um, and it was very quick. So this is the second time that Russian forces have been pushed back. So the result of all of this is that Russia really has very little to show for its massive seven-month offensive
0: in this genocidal war against Ukraine. What's the takeaway from the partial mobilization of reservists this week by Russian President Vladimir Putin? Well, that's an indication that the effort is failing.
2: Putin had planned that this would be a three-day war, and he would be uh, controlling Ukraine very quickly. That clearly did not happen, and their initial advances have been pushed back. And now he's looking for more manpower to, to keep the war going. The interesting thing is that people in Russia have been relatively quiet about all of this until the mobilization was announced. And what we saw almost immediately were protests, protests against the war. But the protester people don't want to go fight. They have not been protesting against the war when Ukrainians have been killed, bombed, tortured, raped. Uh, there's been very little protest. But now, that this massive mobilization has been announced, people are saying, oh, I don't know if I want to participate in this. So we're going to have to wait and see how strong these protests will be. But this is a very clear indication of public opinion in Russia saying, we don't want to be killing Ukrainians, or rather,
0: we don't want to be dying in Ukraine. If if we scratch a little bit deeper that protest in regards to calling up reservists and certainly the understanding of people not necessarily wanting to have to go to war, why does that decision become such a, a, a polarizing one within the country? Why is that the one that encourages people to potentially take to the streets and start pushing back on this war of aggression?
2: Well, because they see that they're losing, right? If they were winning, that would be a different story. But Russia has very, as I said, has very little to show in terms of success. The casualty rates are very, very high. And the motivation to go and kill Ukrainians is not particularly high. Uh, Everybody's like, rah, rah, Russia, yes, let's restore our great power status. But Ukraine has shown effectively that it is defending itself and it is pushing back. And furthermore, the international community has been supporting Ukraine. So part of the success of the offensive, excuse me, in Kharkiv, is as a result of the fact that Ukraine has finally started receiving weapons, because if we look at the big picture, this is a David and Goliath story. Russia is a huge country, and Ukraine is is a smallish, it's a medium-sized country. So Russia's ability, it's like if the U.S. invaded Canada it's a big country versus a small country and ukraine simply didn't have the firepower to defend themselves once they started receiving weapons from the united states from canada from european countries they now have the capacity to to defend themselves so that was a big game changer and what Ukraine has been asking for consistently. Ukraine's president, Mm -hmm. foreign minister, prime minister have been repeatedly saying, please help us. And finally, that aid is coming through. What's important now is that that continues to come because a lot of the weapons that they've received, they've already used up all the
0: bombs. Mm -hmm. So they
2: need new firepower to continue defending themselves and pushing
0: Russia back. Certainly the prospect of nuclear weapons, whether they be tactile or more general, uh, tactical or general, have have hung over this conflict even Mm -hmm. before it started, even before the invasion. We've certainly heard President Putin saber rattle about nuclear weapons before. But how real, I know we're entering the, the, the realm of speculation here, but how realistic are those concerns?
2: That is very, that's an excellent question. Because On the one hand, Putin is the leader. On the other hand, his his rationality is something that we should all be questioning. Now threatening to use nuclear weapons and actually using them are two very different things. And the big reason why nobody is actually going in and helping Ukraine apart from sending troops and training is because of the nuclear issue. There's a fear of escalation that if the United States, if West European countries, if NATO gets involved, that could escalate into nuclear war. Now, that said, uh, there's something called MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction, which has prevented nuclear war all of these years, and that continues to be in place. What that means is if one country starts using nuclear weapons, that escalates and that risks blowing up the entire planet, which is why countries that have nuclear weapons don't use them. NOW, THE OTHER NUCLEAR DIMENSION HERE, WHICH IS IMPORTANT, IS THE FACT THAT RUSSIA HAS OCCUPIED CERTAIN TERRITORIES IN THE Zaporizhzhia Oblast, WHICH IS IN CENTRAL UKRAINE, AND THEY HAVE TAKEN CONTROL OVER NUCLEAR POWER STATIONS. AND THAT IS, IN MY OPINION, A MORE SERIOUS DANGER, BECAUSE THE RISK OF A NUCLEAR ACCIDENT, I THINK, IS HIGHER THAN THE ACTUAL USE OF NUCLEAR WEAPONS. Mm.
0: I know that we're staying in the realm of speculation here, and certainly there's there's no necessarily knowing where this war goes from here. But where do you imagine this playing out over the course of the next five, six, seven, eight, nine months, even, even up to a year? Will we continue to see a, a, a counteroffensive? Will we see the entrenchment of, of, of Russian forces in parts of the country? Or is there potentially going to be enough domestic pressure in Russia to, to begin to really whittle down this war effort?
2: Those are all excellent questions. What we're in now is a war of attrition. Russia has a large population and they can continue sending troops into Ukraine and bombs and tanks. However, their capacity militarily is somewhat limited and they have been losing a lot of their equipment in this war against Ukraine. That said, they still could continue for quite a long time. And here the question is, how much support Ukraine will be receiving from its allies in order to push back and how quickly that will happen. Ukrainian forces have, I think, impressed the world with their their bravery, their strength, their their stealth, uh, how quickly they're learning, how determined they are to protect their territory, their democracy and democracy in general. But it, as I said, it's a David and Goliath story. There are more Russians than there are Ukrainians. The other thing to remember is Russia is a federation, and there are about 100 different nationalities living within Russia, and a lot of the troops that are being mobilized, that are now going to be uh, mobilized, they're being mobilized from the non-Russian republics. And that is something to keep in mind as well, that it's not the kids of the wealthy people in Moscow and St. Petersburg that are being sent to be killed in Ukraine. It are people from Buryatia and uh, various other non-Russian republics. And that's going to be a domestic
0: issue within Russia as well. So that's something to watch. Professor Dichak, I know this story has so many tentacles to it. Thank you for walking us through a few of these complexities. And we really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. That's Professor Marta Dichak, a professor of history and political science at Western University in London, Ontario. Coming up next... We'll talk to Don Dickinson. McLean's Magazine has a very special issue coming out that regards the economy. And one of the big stories that we'll be talking about is the rise in rental prices. It's one that we probably all know all too well as renters in this country. But first, here is Canadian press reporter, Cameron Rebo with your Morning Business Minute.
6: Canada's main stock index lost another 1% yesterday, and markets stateside closed even lower after the U.S. Federal Reserve raised its key interest rate by three quarters of a percentage point for the third straight time. Toronto's TSX index fell 184 points to 19,184. New York's Dow Jones average tumbled 522 points, and the NASDAQ gave back 204. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index rose 159 points, and our dollar is trading overseas. This morning, at 74.34 cents U.S. And the CEO of one of Canada's largest institutional investors isn't mincing words about the recent push by some corporate leaders to order employees back to the office. Evan Siddle says he's amazed at how many tone-deaf white male CEOs are telling their staff they need to come back to the office. The head of the Alberta Investment Management Corporation says we're all adults and where people do their work doesn't matter. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebeau.
0: Welcome back. It's Now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. Our colleagues over at AMI-audio continue to do incredible work on the reading shows, including new episodes of Maclean's Magazine, which you can find at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, Wednesdays on AMI-audio. So Wednesdays, 5 p.m. Eastern Time is when you get the initial broadcast, but it replays a couple times throughout the week. And one of the producers of that show is Don Dickinson to talk about a couple of the major articles. Hey, good morning, Don. Hi there, Dave. How are you? I'm well done. A really interesting full episode this week on McLean's Magazine that took a deep dive into the economy. So we're just going to scratch into a couple of individual stories, but overall, just a fantastic program.
1: Yeah, it was really good. It, it, the entire uh, show is on the economy with 10 articles. So if you're really interested in knowing virtually everything, <laughs>
4: you yeah. should tune in. No, it,
0: it, like the economy can sometimes make people's heads spin a little bit because there's numbers and there's dense concepts. But the more you pour yourself into these things, especially because the articles that McLean's does are, are a little bit more mainstream. They're a little bit easier to wrap your head around. Just a lot of perspective there. Really, really valuable listen or read for folks if they get the opportunity. But let's jump into a couple of these individual articles. And the first one was actually written by someone that we interviewed back in August, Dr. Mike Moffitt from Mm -hmm. the Smart Prosperity Institute. So he wrote an article about the rise in rental prices. So what happened with rent prices at the start of the pandemic?
1: Well, I, find that I found this very interesting because he, he really explained it very, uh, um, you know, in layman's terms. He said when the pandemic kicked off, rental housing prices fell, believe it or not, by 5 to 6% in most Canadian provinces for the first time in years. Mm. Some renters could actually uh, get a good deal. Cities like London, Ontario experienced drops of 10% or more. This is something I did not know. That brief reprieve, however, ended very quickly as uh, the average monthly rate for all vacant rental units in Canada started to hover around $1,900 per month, marking a 10% increase from just a year ago. In Toronto and Vancouver, of course, the big two, prices rebounded by as much as 20%, surpassing
0: Mm. their previous highs. Yeah, I remember a lot of people cutting off their leases early there in the early days to go live with mom and dad to get a backyard and a bigger basement. (laughs) I know my parents threatened me with that, and I said, absolutely not. No way. (laughs) Uh, Don, what are some of the underlying factors that have been causing these waves and spikes in rental pricing?
1: Uh, well, COVID fluctuations aside, rental pricing tends to be proportional to population growth, and that's the big bugaboo. Since 2015, Canada's population has swelled by three million people. I mean, think about that, Dave. That's like that's like
4: 10%. an extra Toronto. Yeah, it's, it's like 10% Yeah, yeah,
1: like it's it's just enormous, right? So um, you've got that uh, massive increase in population, uh, thanks in part to. Uh, expanded federal uh, immigration targets, and yet the country hasn't accelerated uh, the rate at which it builds rental units. Ontario went from 670,000 units in 2015 to only 710,000 units in 2021. That's not very many. That's only
0: 40,000 in four years. That's not very many.
1: No, exactly. You know, that's that, that not a lot at all. So this scarcity extends to rural areas as well, because you had rental stock uh, very much dwindling when everybody was fleeing the cities to get into the outer, uh, you know, areas, and they were buying up those.
0: So where does the federal government come into play here? Are they doing anything that could potentially be helping renters?
1: Well I think at this point in time they realize we're in panic mode and crisis mode and you know like every basically every business story Every night on the news starts with rentals and uh, the price of houses. So this year, the federal government allocated four billion to its housing accelerator fund and set building targets. One idea is to legalize rooming houses, living quarters that can fit up to ten to twenty people, at the municipal and federal <laughs> and municipal and provincial levels. That's very that's
0: very 1860s industrialized London, right there. Like ah, just put twenty people in a place together. It's all good.
1: Well, you know, that. yeah, okay, that's true, but when I was a kid and uh, my parents uh, separated, my mom was a single mother, and she was working very hard, and she couldn't afford much, mm-hmm. and we ended up, believe it or not, we ended up in the west end of the city, west end of Toronto, in a home that had been in Parkdale, and, and if you know Parkdale, it's it's an area that was very, very um, prestigious at one point in time, very large, mm-hmm. large mm-hmm. homes, mansions, basically, and what they did over time is when they were sold off, they were bought up by various people and they were divided up. And we ended up living in one of those places on King street Mm. that had been converted to eight apartments. Right. So there was just mom and me. So, I mean, we just, I mean, we didn't need an enormous amount of space. Right. And as she did better in life, obviously things improved, but that, saved
0: our yeah that saved yeah. us. Oh Don, don't don't get me wrong. I, I I giggled a little bit there. I I I snickered, but we do know that sometimes unregulated density can be can be a problem. But I yeah. but but yeah I, I didn't mean to cut you off there or be snarky about what you're proposing because density no, no, no. is one of the answers in the city. There's no yeah. doubt about that.
1: And actually, to your point, that's also well taken, because it said that uh, legitimizing these living arrangements with rooming houses would, in fact, enforce a minimum security and privacy standards for the people that are already living in them. So by saying that, yes, okay, we're going to have this, They, the government can then bring in more rules, <clears throat> excuse me, and regulations regarding rooming houses, which then can make it actually better for those people.
0: Mm, yeah, that's a very, very good point. Don. I, I know I cut you off there. Was there anything else Else in terms of the federal government file that we wanted to highlight here before we move on?
1: Uh, well, they're doing a number of, of, of other things. They're obviously trying to encourage more condo units and whatnot. Um, I mean, basically, when you're starting out, I mean, we all know this, right? Yourself included. Uh, when everybody's starting out, you, you can't afford a house, you know, so it's it's gotta it's gotta be a condo, right? Yeah. So yeah. the encouragement of more condo units is obviously very very crucial.
0: <laughs> I've talked uh, till I'm blue in the face on this topic uh, many many times on this show, so I'll I'll spare I'll spare the regular viewers uh, my my full thesis here. I I, <laughs> I I I do think the government needs to be getting involved in crown corporations from a rental housing perspective at either at yeah. cost or below market cost rental with still again quality standards in place, certainly accessibility, close to public transit, etc, etc. We don't necessarily want to replicate sort of the projects model in the US. I think you need to be a little bit more mixed model than that. But certainly there'd be something there in creating not-for-profit crown corporations. I also think we need to, and I say this to a certain degree with a certain understanding that it's been an investment model for a lot of people. I think we need to be careful about the number of condos that are being used as rental units by owners. I know uh, we just had the AGM at my building this week, and nearly 40% of the units in my building are, non, are non-owner non lived in. So that's, no. nearly, that's nearly half the condo is being used as rental units. And by the way, no issue with people renting those units, but it does create some odd economic pressures inside the market. Wow, that blows
1: me away, Dave.
0: 40%. Yeah. Holy cow! Yeah, it's a big number. It's a big number, and I know that certainly anecdotal experience is not necessarily statistical evidence. But I'm sure if we looked at a lot of manifests around the city of Toronto, we would see similar-ish numbers.
1: Yeah. True. 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 Uh, one other thing that I didn't mention that it, that that the government is also going to start maybe doing a little more in the way of. Um, uh, approving places like triplexes and uh, purpose-built rentals yes uh, you know a lot of what, what you would call middle density mm-hmm. you see I mean you know most of these condos are very small they're single density uh, condos right so what the what we need is we need more units like Europe has where mm-hmm. there's where there's triplexes
0: and whatnot even even cities like Montreal have made a habit of building a lot of that kind of middle density around the downtown core. So neighborhoods like Verdun, Saint Henry, the Plateau Montreal, a lot of these neighborhoods are built upon triplexes and quadplexes that are that are allowing for that middle density. So you're not dealing with millions and millions of people crammed into small spaces, but you're still allowing for a certain amount of density that's also rather beautiful and gives the places some character. Don? What do you say? Let's move on to the next article because the next okay. one's a lot of fun. I'm I'm hungry to talk about this next article because this one was written by Vass Bednar and explores the sustain- sustainability of the food delivery app market. So the article references the servant economy. What do they mean by that? That's that seems like an escalation.
4: Yeah.
1: Yeah, no kidding. Uh, The so-called servant economy economy emerged in North America in 2008. Of course, everything, you know, it's massive downturn, downturn, right, in the economy. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the aftermath of that recession, it was built on a simple, What they say a seductive premise, Uh, an app-based delivery that relied on efficient algorithms and low-paid independent contractors, which together would offer cheap prices that traditional cheap prices, cheaper prices. Sorry, than traditional competitors. Consumers, particularly young, busy urbanites, became increasingly dependent on these companies like Uber for transportation, takeout, and delivery of essentials like medicine, clothing, directly to their homes Mm -hmm. and workplaces. It really
0: surged when it came in including this guy right here who because because (laughs) i can't drive uh carrying like a lot of cans or heavy bottles home from stores is sometimes difficult so every now and then i like to do an order to get some of those staples brought over to me so i'm definitely a user of this marketplace don why was the market unstable right from the get-go
1: yeah, this was actually a bit surprising to me. The market was always being uh, built on shaky foundations. Companies like Uber, DoorDash, and Just Eats are heavily subsidized by venture capital dollars that have long obscured what is actually costing them to provide these services. Case in point: Uber has rarely turned a profit in its 13 years of operation, despite raking in 17.4 billion—that's with a B—U.S. Uh, dollars in revenue in 2021 alone. So it, that was really surprising. I didn't realize that
0: this was occurring. Well, wow, my Saturday morning McDonald's is really uh, is really uh, paying the bills there for the folks at Uber. <laughs> uh, what What's the future looking like for these delivery apps? We know certainly there was a spike during the pandemic. It's certainly been normalized using them. What's the future look like?
1: Well, despite apps experiencing a huge surge in demand during the pandemic, um, the national... The national spike in food prices over the past few months has deterred consumers from their usual dining order habits. On-demand apps are now struggling to retain the cheap laborers that they depended on for their deliveries. And we, we've heard this time and time again. Drivers are growing weary of gig work lack of benefits and the unstable hours. They're also burning out from algorithms that treat them like robots mm-hmm. instead of human beings. And drivers are penalized for declining too many deliveries i didn't know this yeah, yeah. Uh, or for not accepting them fast enough predictably they're turning uh, elsewhere for work uber and lyft drivers in the us were at 40% lower capacity in july of 2021 oh, wow. similar shortage similar yeah 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 20% similar shortages are cropping up in canada so basically the you know higher food prices and then of course these these poor souls that you know are weaving in and out of traffic getting you your food dave yeah they uh, they work
0: their tails off there's no doubt about that one that's why there's always a nice tip at the end of the rainbow when they uh, bring me when they bring me my wings and my shameful wings and mac and cheese on a saturday <laughs> afternoon they uh, there's definitely a tip involved there Don, this episode of mclean's Fabulous, fabulous. Thank you for yeah. reflecting on a couple of the articles. And again, I'll remind folks, Wednesday's 5 p.m. Eastern time for new episodes. But that that show is certainly going to repeat a couple times here on the AMI audio wheel. So if folks can track that down, they definitely should listen to the whole yeah. show.
1: Yeah, it's a great episode to, to catch.
0: Don, thank you for this. Have a great weekend. Okay, you too, Dave. Bye-bye. That's Don Dickinson, producer of McLean's Magazine. New episodes Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. But as I mentioned a couple times there, the way in which the repeat programming works on AMI-audio, you can find that one a couple of different times. So keep an eye out that one or head over to AMI.ca and check out the schedules to see if you can get your ears on that one. Coming up next. Aaron Broverman will offer up his perspective on the mishandling and damage to mobility devices like wheelchairs caused by airlines. But first, the data breach at Uber shows that hacking goes well beyond a hacker being tech savvy. Here's Derek Dennis with Tech Trends. cybersecurity expert Kyle Tobiner says a recent data breach at Uber left much of the company's internal data exposed.
3: Corporate email, the corporate Slack channel, he was posting pictures there, and lots of the different online applications that Uber uses to run the company, their finance data, for example.
0: A hacker targeted a specific employee posing as someone from the company's
3: IT department, a practice known as social engineering. Pulled the employee on like a text message, I'm from IT, I need this access. And finally, the employee relented, provided the access, and the, the hacker was in.
0: Tobiner says it demonstrates the need to train employees to recognize potential hackers and to prepare for what happens if they don't. There's a
3: very common phrase in security, which is assume breach, which is we, we do the best to build a defense, but then we assume it's breached and we build the next defense after it.
0: With Tech Trends, I'm Derek Dennis, ABC News. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Travel troubles have been quite common over the last few months, whether it be security delays or flight cancellations, there have been headaches. For people with disabilities, there is a whole new level of hassle. And hassle is an understatement on this one. Damage or lost mobility devices? The founder of Access Now, Mayan Ziv, just had a horrendous experience with a badly damaged wheelchair on an Air Canada flight to Israel. Aaron Broverman has some thoughts and experience with this issue. Aaron is the lead editor at Forbes Advisor Canada. Hey, good morning, Aaron. Thank you for making time for us today.
7: Good morning, Dave. This is a a consumer issue that's close to my heart, so I'm glad I'm talking to you about it.
0: Yeah, so let's start with this particular story. How did you find out about it, and what's your reaction?
7: Well, like everyone, I was watching the coverage of uh, the Queen's death when I saw across the bottom of the Chiron a woman's wheelchair damaged by airline, and I thought, you know, not another one, because this is so common among people with disabilities. And then uh, later that night, I found out it was my friend Mayan Ziv. And I thought, oh, like, you know, that's uh, really unfortunate for Mayan. But Mayan is also a titan of disability activism. So I knew that uh, since this had happened to her, uh, there was going to be a change coming. Uh, this means war, as
0: she told me uh, later on. I I, I want to stick to the, the Mayan side of the story for one more moment, because we did get a report yesterday that the Minister of Disability, responsible for disability federally, Carla Qualtrough, has spoken with the Canadian Transportation Agency about this. We know there's not been necessarily any policies in place yet. But Aaron, this is something, as you put in that answer, it's all too common. Have, have you had experience with this? I, thankfully, I have not personally had
7: my uh, mobility scooter broken on an airline, but I have been with people who have had uh, their mobility device damaged You know, on the flight that I was on. And uh, it's so common that I have taken to uh, renting a mobility scooter at my destination instead of taking my own because I'm so afraid that it's going to get uh,
0: damaged beyond repair. What's the cost of all these broken wheelchairs or lost mobility devices?
7: So if we think that, like, you know, the average custom wheelchair costs between $1,500 and $5,000, what we know is that the uh, Department of Transportation in the U.S. tracks that 15,425 wheelchairs have been broken since the end of 2018 to the begin, like basically the beginning of 2021. So that's like that—that's a lot of money. That's between 22 million to 77 million dollars, uh, depending on the cost of your chair, whether it's. 1500 or $5,000. Uh, $5, so that's a lot of money that they're just, you know, they're just damaging. Not to mention the fact that, you know, if they broke like 15,425 legs, uh,
0: this would be such a bigger issue mm. than it is. Yeah, there's there's so much to that, right? Beyond just the dollars and cents figure in regard to this. Because it's not as if, if you, have, if you need a custom-built wheelchair, a custom-built device... That may take months to get access to at a certain point. To a certain degree, we're not just talking about a, a loss in terms of a direct monetary impact. There can be some cascading factors that can last for months, for a year, let alone the actual emotional impact.
7: Yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, my Mayan, for example, was stranded in Israel for a week without a mobility device. Thankfully, uh, she has, you know, rented a, a wheelchair since then, but... Imagine not being able to go anywhere, uh, you know, just because like you're, you're basically your independence has been taken away. And, uh, you know, nobody takes that uh, seriously. So uh, I'm glad that uh, Carla Qualtro and the Minister of Transportation are on it. And I hope that uh, real change happens, because, as I said, Mayan is such a powerhouse that she uh, she mobilized her connections right away. Yeah. I don't know if this would have happened if somebody that wasn't Mayan, you know, if this happened to them, I don't know if they could get Carla Qualtro and the Minister of Transportation to make a statement on their behalf mm-hmm. and meet with Air Canada.
0: Aaron, as we start thinking about proactive solutions, and certainly this falling on the desks of cabinet ministers is a step, what else can be done about this problem that is all too persistent?
7: Well, there is an organization in the US based in Texas called All Wheels Up and they have been trying uh, to do what many people who use mobility devices have been asking for, which is they want to be able to get on a plane in their chairs the same way they would on a subway or a bus or that sort of thing. So All Wheels Up is uh, crash testing wheelchairs to see if they are safe on planes. And what they've discovered is that the average restraint that you see on a subway or a bus can handle the 16 G's that the FAA requires. So on their website and on their YouTube channel at allwheelsup.org, you can see videos of wheelchairs with the person in it literally driving either from the front or the rear onto the plane. They, they remove a seat, just like they would at a theater or anywhere else that there's an accessible space to be in. And then you just roll up on the wheelchair and park your chair uh, into the restraint. So that's the goal. That's what they're hoping to be able to do eventually by working with Congress, airlines,
0: and airline uh, manufacturers. Yeah, it really seems pretty straightforward as a concept if you consider that so many planes are custom modularly designed that just moving some seats actually shouldn't be that difficult a concept.
7: And they don't even have to use the aisle chair uh, people can get on the plane with dignity. They don't have to be afraid that uh, people not adequately trained to use the aisle chair will drop them or that they will be injured, which is another problem, uh, you know, in the way that yeah. people who use mobility devices board planes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Aaron, obviously we've focused quite a bit here on airplanes. Do other modes of transport have similar issues with lost or stolen wheelchairs and other forms of mobility, mobility device?
7: Definitely lost wheelchairs and uh, mobility devices, but I wouldn't say that other modes of transportation have uh, this problem quite as widespread. What I would say is that dealers who deal in repair for wheelchairs, it's such a custom uh, industry that they know that they kind of have you over a barrel if you're a person with a disability they can charge whatever they want because you know you can't really go anywhere else so it can become quite costly and they know that uh, people with disabilities don't have the knowledge that they have because many mobility disability uh, mobility device companies uh, require you to go through your dealer if you want to get repaired and it's not as if you can just get trained in wheelchair repair because, you know, uh, the, these uh, these manufacturers keep trade secrets close to the vest and only uh, share uh, repair uh, stuff with uh, registered dealers.
0: Aaron, it really feels like this is almost a continuation of our conversation last time about the disability tax, that this is just another layer in the way in which so many costs can be passed on to people with disabilities
7: yeah absolutely. Like, and this is the most devastating layer because if you, you know, lose your wheelchair or if it gets damaged, you, you know, you're screwed for the rest of your trip. And uh, mostly what airlines have been offering up until now, up until uh, they've gotten attention from Carla Qualtro and the Minister of Transportation is basically just like, we'll give you a voucher. So basically, you're they they want to they want to allow you to come back on you're, it's you're basically coming back to the abuser who's abused your wheelchair. And they're like, you know, maybe you want to take another trip. I don't think so.
0: Yeah, seriously, Aaron, we're so grateful that you could offer some perspective on this story for us. Thank you.
7: You're welcome. I, I'm so glad uh, I get to talk to you about this. It's It's been a privilege, Dave. Yeah, it's
0: a really pressing issue. I know we've talked about it a couple times in accessibility story roundups over the course of the last year, trying to lay out the foundation, but I think bringing in some real-world perspective is always a really useful device on this. So, Aaron, we appreciate it. Have a nice weekend. You too. Thank you so much. That's Aaron Broverman, the lead editor at Forbes Advisor Canada. Tell me about your travel nightmares. I want to hear your stories Reach out to us. Give the show feedback. Tell me about what people have done well, what they've done poorly. We want to know. We know it's a vast, broad experience out there, but I want to hear from you because your experience matters on these topics as well. Send us an email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca. Find us on social media, at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, or give us a phone call, one 866 509-4545. 509-4545. That's 1866-509-4545. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI TV.
6: This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.